You're listening to The Beauty Brains, where real scientists answer your beauty questions. And now, here's Randy and Perry. Hello, everyone. Randy Schuler here, introducing another repeat performance of one of our earlier episodes. No, I'm just kidding. This is all new stuff because I'm back in the studio with fellow beauty brain, Perry Romanowski. Hey, Randy. It's good to be back. Absolutely. Yeah. um, Well, I got to use the time off to do a lot of... uh, I don't don't know what I did. Well, we've had a lot of big stuff on the uh, the beauty brains, or or no, actually on Chemist Corner, we did a whole uh, we did a whole reboot of the Chemist Corner website. <laughs> We're starting off the show with a promo a promotional piece for Chemist Corner. How about we start off the show by teasing what we're going to talk about today? Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. Well, stay tuned because in today's all new show, you'll learn if silicones really can melt onto your hair whether or not you should hack your foundation with food coloring, and how rinse-off skincare products work. But before we get to all that, I mean, do we have any, um, where in the world is Perry Romanowski? I know it's been a while since we've chatted. Anything going on there? Well, you know, I was just in South Carolina. Yeah, there was a a, uh, thing called Naturally Kiawa uh, Cosmetic Conference, and so it was a a conference just dedicated to the formulation of natural cosmetic products. Which gave you a chance to hawk the course that you sell on natural (laughs) cosmetic formulating. Bravo. (laughs) Well, you know, I just went there to learn. There was actually some fascinating topics on natural preservatives, natural surfactants, which all seem kind of the same stuff they're just sort of a, a twist to get the natural story but sure. one of the one of the most interesting topics that what they talked about was uh, they had a guy uh, do a talk on non-wovens oh um, and that I guess the non-woven market is just really uh, really growing but those are like some kind of thermoplastic materials are they talking about natural non-wovens was that the the bit Right, so like facial wipes and baby wipes and, mm-hmm. and those sorts of things. But yeah, it was sort of the natural version of those things. It just struck me as as kind of uh, strange because is, non-woven seems like a very wasteful to me, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, you're just you're taking this you're taking this tissue or whatever. You, you wipe it on your face and then you throw it in the garbage. It does seem to generate more waste than a, you know, bottle of a conventional product and maybe, you know, you bring your own washcloth that gets, you know, washed and reused. So, yeah, I guess in that sense, it's not very environment. It's natural, but it's just not very environmentally friendly. <laughs> I just don't know. It just, it just seemed, seemed kind of funny. And it seemed kind of funny to me that um, these kind of products are just growing. It seems, you know... We hear all of this information or this, these these claims that the natural market is growing and that people want more natural products, and then oh yeah, the non-wovens are just kicking ass, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, it's, it's just just very it's very strange consumers out there. I'm not really sure how much people really want natural products. They they just want to feel like they're getting them, but then they really want products that work, right? Yeah. Well, I think everybody wants products that work. Yeah. Exactly. 
So, Randy, we're changing up the format of the show a little oh, bit. Huh? I thought we'd try something a little bit different. So what we'll do is uh, we'll do, instead of doing a show that's entirely beauty science news and then the following week doing a show that's entirely questions and answers, we're going to mix it together a little bit. So we'll start off, we'll do a, a short little segment with a couple of beauty science news stories, and then we'll go into cosmetic questions. Right. This is kind of like how we did it in the old days. <laughs> it is. We're reverting back a little bit, but there, yeah. we'll see. Wait, you know, that's the beauty brains. We're always experimenting, right? Always going backwards. That's our motto. All right. So we, should we kick it off with some beauty science news? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go ahead. You can take the first one. Yeah, I'm, I'm just waiting for you to play that intro music. <laughs> okay, here we go. All right. Boy, Randy, you know, the class action lawsuit firms are really active this year in the beauty business, right? Oh, God. Here we go again. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, there was the J&J suit about talc and right. the, the WEN suit about making your hair fall out and yep. the EOS lawsuit about uh, blistering lip balms. Sure. But now, ironically, the Honest Company is being sued for being dishonest. <laughs> Yikes. So here's what happens. Uh, a few months ago, there was a report published in the Wall Street Journal that suggested a claim made by the Honest Company was false. Uh, I don't know if we talked about this on the show, but essentially, the claiming the the company was claiming that their liquid laundry detergent, their dish soap, and their other cleaners were free of sodium lauryl sulfate. Okay. Then the Wall Street Journal had some scientists and independent labs test the Honest detergent uh, products, and they found high levels of SLS. <laughs> <laughs> so what, they're just blatant liars? What was the deal? Well, well in, a, in a blog post that the Honest Company put on their, uh, their site, the, the Honest Company insisted that they are not misleading consumers. In fact, they claim that they don't use SLS... But instead, they're using sodium cocoal salt. <laughs> so it, this is really, this is kind of funny to chemists, but it makes some sense to explain the difference here, right? Yeah. Um, both SLS and sodium cocoal sulfate, they're both detergents, right? Right. They're both, they both have a sodium part of the molecule, mm -hmm. and then they have a sulfate part of the molecule. Right. You know, it's a little complicated, but the important parts to consider are that laurel and that cocoa piece, right? Right. So laurel refers to the part of the molecule that has 12 carbon atoms, right? Okay. So most of SLS is a detergent that has 12 carbon atoms. Now, I should say when you buy SLS, um, you never get all 12, you know, all sure, C12. Sure, it's, it's a right? distribution of those carbon chains, but yeah, it's primarily exactly. C12. Exactly. Um, now, cocoa refers to a blend of hydrocarbons with a different lengths, right? Now, this comes from coconut oil. So it'll have some 10-carbon detergents, some 14-carbon detergents, 16-carbon detergents. But it just so happens that mostly it contains 12-carbon <laughs> <laughs> atoms, right? And you know what we refer to 12-carbon atom detergents? Sodium, Sodium laurel, laurel sulfate. sulfate. So, so the Honest Company argues that they don't put any sodium laurel sulfate in their products. However, they put the blended detergent that contains 50% sodium lauryl sulfate, and so that's how it shows up on the test. Wow, sign me up for that lawsuit. I mean, it seems to me this is a classic case of greenwashing, right? Essentially, yeah. essentially they wanted to have the, the, the effectiveness of sodium lauryl sulfate, right. and we use it in the industry because it's really an effective detergent. But they just didn't want that word sodium lauryl sulfate on right. their labels, right? 
Um, and so they use sodium cocal sulfate, which essentially is the same thing. Right, right. Just, you know, tiny differences, right? So, um, so shame on them. And even though I guess you, the examples you cited were laundry products, but you could do the same thing in personal care products. Right, and and they have personal care products, so I don't I don't I don't know specifically uh, if they make that claim. But I think we're really where they get in trouble though is that they they claim SLS free, and you know, you, if you do a chemical analysis of it, right. it, it they're gonna find sodium chloral sulfate. Maybe so maybe if they had worded the claim, you know, no added SLS or something, you know, maybe they could have weasel worded their way into it to be at least a little more supportable. But if you're saying it's SLS free, you're screwed because right, it's in there. Right. Yeah, I, I just wonder how did this one get past their chemist, right? You know, they, they, the chemist who's putting that together is going to say, yeah, it's got SLS. Yeah, but you know what? It's not going to be the chemist's call. It's going to be, you know, right. the marketing department's going to override them. I don't know what kind of regulatory department they yeah. have. They're the ones that I would think yeah. would be on the hook for letting this go out. Yeah, I know our regulatory department oh, would never let no something way. go like that. So, well, we'll see what happens with this uh, lawsuit. But uh, I, for one, am glad to see companies like this being called out on their BS. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> go greenwashing. Hey, uh, remember our book, It's Okay to Have Lead in Your Lipstick? And answers to other questions you're dying to know. I've got a, I've got a few copies in my garage right now. <laughs> if anybody wants to buy some, just, just stop by Perry's house. Uh, well, you know, maybe it's time we write a sequel to that book and call it "It's Not Okay to Have Mineral Oil in Your Lipstick." What? Uh, yeah, our friend Colin Sanders over at Colin's Beauty Pages recently oh, yeah. published an article on this very subject. Uh, he reviewed a paper from the International Journal of Cosmetic Science which addressed the issue of using these long-chain hydrocarbons, like mineral oil, in lip products. So remember, mineral oil is just that. It's this long chain of hydrocarbons, uh, of uh, carbon atoms, that are surrounded by hydrogen atoms. Right. And, you know, there's a, there's a family of materials that are like that. Mineral oil is one of the most popular. And it's used in lip products to provide some slipperiness, some shine. Uh, and it's been used you know, for d decades. Uh, overall, mineral oil is quite safe for use in cosmetics as long as it's properly purified. Uh, but here's the issue for lip products. Our bodies aren't equipped to break down mineral oil uh, like they are for other fats and oils, like vegetable oils or even animal fats and oils. Right, we just didn't evolve the process to uh, break that kind of thing down. Right, so that means that most mineral oil will just pass through our body. And in fact, it, at one time it was used as a laxative because it really passes through the body pretty well. Uh, but some of that may be retained. Not, so it's not passed through the body, it's not broken down by the body, so some of it's retained in the body. And what happens to that small amount that's left over? Well, research on rats have shown that high intakes of these uh, hydrocarbon oils can have some harmful health effects. Now, you know, as Colin points out in the article, you can't always track animal studies to human studies, but I guess there's enough concern that the regulatory body in the EU, uh, the, the scientific body that looks into these things, has published a new recommendation that says uh, that they should, you should only use mineral hydrocarbons in lip products when there's clear data for an acceptable daily intake. So if there's clear data that shows your body can process a certain amount of this oil, then it's okay to put it in. But you shouldn't just, you know, willy-nilly be putting large amounts of mineral oil in products. So, you know, Colin points out, and I agree, this is probably much ado about nothing. And the good news is there are plenty of, of vegetable oil alternatives. So if you, if you don't want to formulate with mineral oil, it's not that tough to get around it. Um, so, you know, how big of a health concern is this really? I'm not sure, 
But if you know, it's it's something that I expect now to be hitting the news here since Europe is doing something about it. So you right. may see more buzz about mineral oil in cosmetic products, and that's the deal. Um, now we should say that this specifically for uh, you know lipsticks and lip balm products on the lips, right? And because there is a chance of ingestion there. Right. But when you see mineral oil in your hand lotion, you know, mineral oil is way too big to get into your body through your skin. So it's not really a concern for that kind of product. It, agree for sure. And we actually wrote a, a post a couple of years ago about myths about mineral oil. And I don't know if you saw this, but we just this week we had a comment on that post. Someone said, oh, yeah, you still think mineral oil is safe? Read this. And then they linked to a, uh, a scientific journal report about uh, the carcinogenicity of mineral oils, but if you read the study they linked to, it was untreated or mildly treated mineral oils. In other words, mineral oils that haven't been purified. Right, not cosmetic grade. <laughs> right. So yeah, those things are you know can be harmful. It's sort of like saying, well, uh, you know, unpurified water, you know, or contaminated drinking water can make you sick. Right. But. Purified drinking water is perfectly fine, but because the contaminated stuff is bad, then it's all bad. Like, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> well, it makes sense to some people, apparently. <laughs> I guess. Seems ridiculous to me. Well, anyway, so I'll put a link in the show notes to uh, the article that Colin published, so if anybody wants to read a little bit more about this. But I wouldn't freak out about it, but if you're worried about it, you do have alternatives. Yeah. Actually, I noticed that Colin uh, was doing a, a, a website refresh, so... <laughs> you can go take a look at his new design. Uh, is this just you trying to bring up uh, Chemist Corner again? We get oh, it. Yeah. You redesigned it. I know. I hear you. That's right. What, I'm, what I want to know is why you're not spending your time redesigning our website. That's coming next. Uh, actually, if, you, if anybody on, in the audience has some ideas about how we could redesign it, Ooh. we'd love to take some suggestions. That would be good. Give us some yeah. feedback. But that's that's coming up in the second half of the year. The, the whole redesign of the Beauty Brains blog well, website. Stay tuned for that. All right, shall we move on to some cosmetic questions? Yeah, let's do that. Now, do we have a special intro music for that? So I'll take the first question. It's an audio question that comes to us from Kylie, and let me just say we love audio questions. Yeah, if you have a question, it's pretty easy to send it to us, and we love the audio versions, although we'll take uh, text versions, but to do an audio question, you can just record it right on your smartphone, and then email that recording to thebeautybrains at gmail.com. Very good, and that's exactly what Kylie did, and so let's give it a listen. Hi, my name is Kylie from Australia, and I have a question about silicon damage to hair. I'm going to be removing years of black hair dye and I've bought a decolouring kit from Scott Cornwell. Um, he states that if the product doesn't work, it's usually due to silicon damage. Um, and he's saying that if you use high heats from styling tools such as straightening and curling irons above 230 degrees Celsius, the silicon on the hair reaches boiling point and melts, causing silicon damage, i.e. hair becomes permanently plasticized and will no longer respond to any hair-removing color treatment. Um, I just wanted to know if there's any scientific merit to this. Can silicons from hair products build up on the hair and become plasticized in response to high heat? Thank you. 
All right. So to answer this, I, I, I thought I knew what the answer was, but you know what? Sometimes I want to get some outside expertise. You know, it's not always just about you and me, Perry. <laughs> so <laughs> hard for you to believe, I know. But <laughs> I, I spoke with one of the top experts in the chemistry of silicones used for hair care. Now, this person has over 100 patents on the subject. Uh, he has expertise in the development and scale-up of silicones for personal care. Dozens, if not hundreds, of publications on this subject. Long story short, this guy knows who he's talking about, uh, what he's talking about. Now, he didn't want to have his name used on the program, <laughs> but do you know who I'm talking about? Do you? Of course I do, yeah. Uh, he's, he's, he's written a bunch of books about the subject in the industry, too, yeah. Very good. So the guy is an expert. So, uh, so let me paraphrase his response to Kylie. So he said the... You know, the answer, the difficulty in answering the question is that it was a little bit vague because there are lots of different types of silicones. Uh, and he said some of those can polymerize like bathtub sealer. Right. Uh, so, but he says, I assume your audience has the sense not to put bathtub caulk on your hair. So, <laughs> so Kylie, <laughs> do not caulk your hair. Uh, so the way those types of silicones work is when they dry down, they polymerize and cross-link, and they do form a film. I mean, you guys have all, I'm sure, seen caulk on paint or, or a bathtub. It stuff's really tough to remove. That doesn't wash off at all. It's designed to, to stay behind. But uh, the silicones used in personal care don't work that way. So these are liquids, not solids, and they don't polymerize on your hair. Now, as far as boiling goes, you know, she, she asked if you heat it so high it boils off or whatever. So, no, even, uh, he says, even at the temperatures, you know, used in hair processing with flat irons and so forth, you're not going to cause these things to polymerize. Yeah. Um, you know, partly because the temperature just doesn't get high enough and the temperature exposure isn't that long and the chemistry just doesn't work that way anyway. So bottom line is, he says, no, there's no basis for saying this whatsoever, regardless of what any stylist tells you. Now, you know, nail that, polish... That, that, uh, that's shocking. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, nail polishes will do that sort of thing. That's exactly how they work. So, you know, nail polishes do polymerize either in the drying process or if you're using, uh, you know, a UV light to cure mm -hmm. the nail polish. In fact, that's specifically why you use that light because it causes a reaction where the polymers cross-link and that's, uh, especially in gel manicures, that's why they last so long. It's, it's doing the same thing the bathtub caulk is doing in a sense. <laughs> But the silicones used in hair care do not behave that way. So what we learned from this segment is don't put uh, nail products or caulk on your hair. <laughs> Just to sum up, yeah. There you go, Kylie. There we go. Well, thanks for that question. Uh, I'll take the next question, huh? Yeah. Uh, this question uh, comes from Sea Horseshoes, and they ask, uh, as a lot of folks with a yellow undertone to their complexion know, it can be really hard to find a foundation that matches your skin color. I found quite a number of blog posts and YouTube videos suggesting that mixing foundation with a few drops of food coloring would be a good way to alter it. Hmm. The proportion would be very small. Food coloring is quite strong after all. But I was wondering if this is a practice. It seems to me like it should be since food coloring is obviously food grade, but are there other risks that I'm overlooking since it's being applied topically instead of ingested? Hmm. Well, this is a good question. It really depends on which colorants you're talking about, right? Sure. Now, as we mentioned in a previous show, some ingredients are safe to eat, but they can irritate your skin. For example, cinnamon or peppermint, perfectly fine to eat, but you don't want to put those things on your skin. Yeah, so it could be the same with some of these colorants. 
Exactly. The safest thing you can do is to check to see if the food colorant that you want to use is approved for use in cosmetics. And you can do that by checking the FDA's approved colorant list. There's actually a very handy uh, web page on the FDA.gov cosmetics, which lists specifically the colorants that can be used for cosmetics. I'll tell you, what, I'll put a link uh, in the show notes to that. It's a little tough to read through that, but if you, you know, if you've got some time, you can figure out yeah. what colorants can be used in which. Well, well, on that page, there is one that says uh, uh, colors for cosmetics, mm-hmm. and it's just the whole list of them. Now you'll have to look at your uh, food dyes that you're using, right? Yeah. And uh, just see what colors are listed there, and then compare it to that list uh, on the FDA website. All right. Now, also keep in mind that just because something is safe for the skin doesn't mean that you can use it all over. For example, there are some colorants that are approved for, you know, all over, but not for around the eye. So, you know, you you don't want to be mixing colorants that are not approved for use around the eye. And then finally, as you mentioned, food coloring is so concentrated, so you'll have to do this very carefully, right? I think it'd be really hard to duplicate this, right? I, I can't imagine how this would even work. I, I guess I could have watched the YouTube videos, but you know, you, you're talking about a little drop of food coloring is going to grossly affect the, the color of the product. And I assume that they're talking about taking just a small amount of the foundation, you know, in their hand or something, and then adding a right. drop of color. I mean, how do you do that consistently every time you put on your makeup? I, yeah, I don't know. And, uh, you know, when... When makeup products are made, I mean, they grind the, the, the dyes and pigments into the formula at, you know, in a meticulous kind of way to get an even, distri- even distribution. Right. If you're doing this on your own, you're not going to get the even distribution, so you're probably going to get uneven color tones. And, you know, also if you add too much of a water-based food color to an oil-based foundation that could really screw up the stability of it, for example. Well, yeah, you, you certainly could. So maybe if you were doing this on the on the go, right, every day as you apply your makeup, putting a little bit in your hand and mixing it, I, I don't think you're going to have too much of a stability problem. But if right. you said, oh, I figured out the per- perfect recipe is, you know, two drops of food coloring in, you know, a, a, a bottle of something, well, now you're introducing more water into an oil-based product, and at some point you could upset the emotional stability. So... It seems to me, and again, we, this comes up a lot on the show, people love their do-it-yourself hacks, but sometimes your time is spent better off just finding the right product that's a good color match for you and not messing with a something that's already formulated. Well, I mean, I guess if the complaint is that you can't find that color, no, uh, no, this, fair this might be a hack that you could try out. I, I wouldn't have a lot of uh, faith in it being a good solution yeah but. but it's it's not you know some of the things we've talked about you know like using oreo cookies as mascara <laughs> is just downright dangerous this one is probably not going to cause you any serious harm exactly all right well hey before we get to the next question quickly i want to touch on itunes reviews because we haven't done this in a couple of weeks and this is how we um, help spread the word about the show it helps us find sponsors helps us keep providing free content to people So if you can please go to iTunes and not only just uh, rate us, but write a short review, that's immensely helpful. Because of these reviews that you guys have been giving us, we are consistently in the top of the rankings in the um, uh, fashion and beauty section of iTunes. We're like the number one, two, three, four, five podcast like every single week because of you guys. You know, I even noticed that we've eclipsed the 500,000 listener mark. Yeah, isn't that cool? Is that that per day? What is that? 
No, that's just since, <laughs> since we've been doing the show. Oh, total, I see. We've had we've had half a million people listen to our show. Holy crap! Like your head isn't big enough already. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, all right. So if you do leave a, a review for us, we'll give you a quick shout out on the show, and we've got a couple to do today. So first of all, Labolts from the United Arab Emirates says, "It's not every day you come across credible scientists that talk about beauty products." If you look past their sense of humor, sorry guys, <laughs> the podcast can send you tons of money. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> well, it's not everybody's cup of tea. <laughs> Speaking of that, uh, Daisy325 from Canada says, The two guys are extremely knowledgeable in this field. If you are more of a reader than a listener, their website provides an extensive amount of information that any human being will need on beauty (laughs) products, cosmetics, and other ingredients in toiletries. Oh, and we love their sense of humor. (laughs) You you just made up that last part. (laughs) I I did, yeah. Uh, those two were both five-star reviews, and consistently we get four- and five-star reviews for the most part, but we're always open to negative feedback as well. And here's a two-star review that comes to us from Miss Edgley in Australia. She says, Condescending men talking about women's beauty products. Two stars. Uh, Really disappointed as it's a couple of guys making fun of women's beauty websites and pontificating about beauty products which are mostly for women. Pretty boring. So I, I want to actually I want to take a second and respond to that. So, with all due respect, Miss Edgerly, uh, I, I must say you're missing the point. I mean, we are condescending and snarky at times, uh, but that's really only towards misinformation and pseudoscience because that kind of information, whether it comes from a women's beauty website or a magazine or somebody's YouTube, you know, whatever. Uh, that kind of misinformation can steer you wrong, cause you to waste money on products that don't really deliver what they promise. So we try... And it, and well, it can be harmful. Right. Can, yeah. <laughs> uh, right, Oreo cookies, I'm looking at you. Uh, so you know, we try and, and educate and empower people to be smarter shoppers. And we, we try and do it you know, while, you know, while being entertaining. <laughs> so I'm sorry you find that boring. Uh, but just to be clear, when we are condescending and snarky, it's for a reason, and it's certainly not directed at our audience. Yeah. Usually it's Randy directing it at me. <laughs> <laughs> Occasionally. Actually, I, I should just let the audience know the reason we had this uh, one-month hiatus was Randy was trying to overcome this negative feedback. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. No, you told me you weren't coming back in the studio until I agreed to put on some pants. That's what I thought it was. <laughs> That's right. You know, why don't we get to the next question? <laughs> All right. Here's one from Zenity who asks about this hair product called Hairprint. She says, it's a mystery to me how it, quote, restores one's natural hair color, as they claim. So this is an interesting product. It comes from a small California-based company called The Nature of Hair, which I was not familiar with. Here's how they describe the technology, in case the audience hasn't heard about this. Um, So I'm quoting from their website. Hairprint is not a dye. Think of it as a hair healing system that just happens to reverse gray hair to its natural color. Hairprint creates a process whereby the natural pigment in your hair called eumelanin is recreated in the hair shaft. Okay. Wow. That sounds pretty incredible. I could see why that might raise some eyebrows. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're saying it's a natural way to destroy, to destroy, natural way to restore your hair color without dyes. That's pretty incredible. Um... The formula, the ingredient list, is pretty simple. I looked it up. It just contains water, baking soda, uh, velvet bean extract, 
sodium carbonate, a thickener, hydrogen peroxide, and a couple of other things, uh, including uh, manganese gluconate and ferrous gluconate. So certainly no, no dyeing material that they're hiding in the formula under a different name. So what's the deal with this? Well, once again, I checked with an expert in the field. Uh, this, is, uh, this time it was a cosmetic chemist who specialized in hair dye for over 30 years. Uh-huh. And I'll, I'll, I won't mention his name, but I'll give you a hint. <laughs> he, he was a former boss of ours, so we'll leave it at that. I would, I would have guessed. Uh, so, okay, so he, here's how he explained it. He said, uh, you know, as you probably know, the type of pigment that gives hair and skin their color is called melanin. And there's a related complex called dopamine melanin, which is thought, actually, I thought this was interesting, it's thought to be the pigment in brain tissue. You know what they call the gray matter? Well, the gray in gray matter comes from this dopamine melanin complex. Now, you can make this complex by oxidizing L-dopa, which is a precursor of dopamine. All right, you got all that so far? Got it. Okay, so this velvet bean extract in this product has a high concentration of L-dopa. So it's at least theoretically possible that the hydrogen peroxide in the formula could be oxidizing this velvet bean extract and forming this L-dopa, which again is related to this dopamine melanin complex. So theoretically, this thing could be creating some dark color through, I guess you'd call it a natural process. It's certainly not creating a conventional dye. Uh, So that may be adding some color to the hair. Secondly, the ferrous gluconate and the manganese gluconate could also add some color in the same way that lead acetate, which is the main active ingredient in the Grecian formula, if you remember that old school hair dye. Sure. Um, and what happens there is these materials react with the free sulfur that's in your hair to create a, a dark pigment. Interesting. So the bottom line, according to our expert, is that you know this is just it's another way of putting color back into hair. It doesn't involve conventional dyes. It may work to a degree, uh, but there's a couple of problems. First of all, the, the price is crazy high for, for it. Uh, and secondly, it's not going to work as co- well as conventional hair dye products because you're, you get a very limited range of color out of this kind of reaction. Right. So you, if your hair is the right color and you've got some gray, you'll get a little bit of darkening back, but it's not going to restore all hair colors. Hmm. So there so, you go. I mean, I guess it's... Uh if you think it's worth it, you can try it out. But just yeah, I mean, it's in. interesting that there is a little bit of science behind it, but you're probably not getting your money's worth out of it is kind of the, the bottom yeah. line. Yeah. All right, I think we got time for one more question. Yeah. Harper asks, how do in-shower self-tanners and lotions work? Like, how do they sink in so quickly and not wash off? For example, St. Tropez uh, has a... <laughs> I think that's San Tropez. Saint-Tropez. It's Saint-Tropez. Saint. That's the brand. This, we, do we have to go back to that list of beauty brands that people <laughs> do not pronounce? It's Saint-Tropez. Saint-Tropez. All right. Saint-Tropez uh, has a new gradual self-tanner that you apply to wet skin. Wait three minutes, then wash it off. Jurgens. Did I say that one right? <laughs> Jurgen, but okay, close enough. Uh, Jurgens has a wet skin moisturizer. As these uh, are these less effective than other methods, and if so, why? Uh, the in-shower self-tanning products work the same way as the leave-on products. They use an ingredient called DHA, which reacts with skin protein to give a tan color. Mm-hmm. We've we've talked about that in yeah, previous oh yeah, shows. Sure, sure. Go check that out. Uh, Rinse-off products like this may contain a higher level of the DHA to compensate for the fact that. Uh, m- most of it is rinsed off. Right. Uh, 
But in both cases, the DHA is in contact with skin long enough to react and form the tan. A leave-on product can use a lower level, and that isn't because it's going to be in contact with the skin longer, and so rinse-off products have to use a higher level uh, so that because it'll be in contact with the skin for a shorter yeah, it's, amount it's of time. It's a trade-off, yeah. Right. So in this way, rinse-off products can be used a couple of times to in- achieve what you'd call a gradual tan, right? right? In shower moisturizers, work by suspending a water-insoluble moisturizing ingredient. Um, Jergens uses mineral oil. Uh, when the lotion is applied to wet skin, the emulsion breaks, and then the mineral oil is deposited on the skin. Uh, by the way, if you read the directions, you'll see that the Jergens product is applied to wet skin, but it's not rinsed off. Right. Uh, some in-shower moisturizers, like uh, the Olay product from P&G, mm. they use a similar system that deposit moisturizers on the skin during the rinsing process. But as a general rule, rinse-off products are never as effective at delivering active ingredients as, as the leave-on products. But, you know, I've never seen any specific data on these products. But you can bet that a, a moisturizer that gets rinsed off is not going to work as yeah, well as a moisturizer it's, it's, that's left on. It's kind of one of the truisms of the industry. And when you're formulating, you know, something to, to leave on skin but you're rinsing it off, you're always fighting that rinse-off, you know, piece of it. So Exactly. All right. Hey, Perry, I want to, uh, before we wrap things up today, I want to do a quick plug for our friend, Dr. Tony Ewan. Uh, You know, he runs the website Celebrity Cosmetic Surgery, which is always Uh, a hoot. Check it out if you haven't seen it, you guys. Uh, But he's got a new book out, and uh, he sent me a copy, and I I read it, and it's it's great. It's called The Age Fix. And so I wanted to tell our audience about it because it's refreshingly candid in that here is a doctor, a plastic surgeon, who is just flat out telling you you don't need to spend a lot on product skincare products that are formulated by dermatologists. So, <laughs> wow. so yeah, normally these doctors are hawking their own product line. So here's somebody sure. basically carrying the same message we have, which is you know look at what the formulas are and, and figure out if it's worth right. the money. So, yeah. uh, like I said, I thought Dr. Ewan's book was refreshing. He's got some great tips on how to look younger without having to go in for plastic surgery. Uh, so yeah. check it out, The Age Fix. I'll put a link in the show notes. Well, that sounds like a fascinating book. I'm, I'm so glad that people send you books and not me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's because they know you only listen to audiobooks, while I still prefer the old school paper and hardbacks. Well, that is a good point. Well, I enjoyed the uh, new format of the show, Randy. Yeah, I think it went well. It looks like we're out of time for today. So uh, anything you want to say before we sign off? No, until next time, uh, be brainy about your beauty. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>